The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Medea, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast dedicated to fashion, the art of living well, and all things beauty. I'm your host, Dr. Shirley Madare, your purveyor of this definitive source of living a beautiful life. This week's episode is dedicated to strength, and our topic is stretch, strengthen, and bloom. Do you like the way I did that? Bloom. Body work to help you thrive. Welcome to my interview with Erica Bloom. Erica Bloom is a former professional dancer and veteran Pilates instructor with over 20 years of teaching Pilates. Because she is devoted to holistic wellness, Erica has certifications in multiple therapeutic bodywork modalities, including yoga, the Alexander Technique, and nutrition. She has received notable press, such as in Well and Good, Purist, Into the Gloss, The Rob Report, Forbes, Vogue, Mind Body Green, Goop, The New York Times, Vanity Fair, and many others. Erica is a successful entrepreneur with studio locations in Manhattan, East Hampton, Watermill, Greenwich, Los Angeles, and Turks and Caicos. She is a mother, a partner, and I dare call her a friend. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for your time. So what's your story? Um, where did you grow up and how did you fall in love with fitness and Pilates? Um, I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up with a childhood that was really focused on spending a lot of time in nature and eating whole foods and eating vegetables and kind of living a holistic life. And then I became a professional dancer and I had a lot of injuries and I had a lot of health issues and okay. I was in a lot of pain in my body and um, uh, had digestive issues and autoimmune issues. And I sort of thought, you know, I'm doing everything right. I'm dancing every day. I'm eating well. What's going on? And so I just started exploring. I started exploring wellness and different types of movement modalities. And I found this balance that really, really worked for me. Okay. And I wanted to bring it to other people, but then also realized that what worked for me didn't necessarily work for everyone. And so I just studied and studied and certified and worked with clients and took advice from doctors and read research and gained so much knowledge that I could start my brand and bring that sort of balanced, full life wellness to clients. I love that. Well, we have a couple of things in common. Number one, you're a nerd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and number two, a former dancer. I am both. Mm -hmm. And so being a former dancer, what did dance teach you about the human body? Because for me, being a former ballet dancer, dancing taught me discipline, focus, 
uh, body awareness and a commitment to keep practicing to get better. Yeah. What did dance teach you about the human body and about life? And how did dance prepare you for your career? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that one of the things that's so amazing about dance techniques is that you do a simple movement like a plie over and over again, hundreds of times a day for years and years and years. And yes. every time you do it, it changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get better each day because each day your body's different. So sometimes you go a little bit backwards and that's okay. And sometimes you go a little bit forwards and that's wonderful. And you're always finding something new. Um, and it's a good life lesson because people sort of feel like they should always be adding weight each time or they should be achieving something more each day or if they can't do it, they just shouldn't try. And this idea that you just really keep at it and it is a daily practice so right. that you get where you need to be is wonderful. Um, I also think that dancers really spend a lot of time embodying themselves, feeling where their bones, where their muscles, how can I with my focus and my mind make change in how my body works? Um, that's a lot of what we're trying to teach our clients because we can make so much change just yeah. with mindfulness and anatomical embodiment. I never had a plan. I just did what I loved each day and sort of fell into things. Yeah. I never said I'm going to become a Pilates instructor, start a business. I just loved it and you know all of the expansion has come from a client being in need and being in a new location and wanting to care for them and I I make sure that I put every day in my life what brings me joy and so it's yeah it's great yeah. So do you have a gratitude practice every day? Do you either write down or think about what you are joyful about or grateful for? I have a gratitude practice, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I have it for myself and for my life, but I do a separate gratitude practice for my staff. And it oh. came from writing a recommendation letter for a teacher that was going off to DO school. Mm -hmm and writing about how wonderful she was and just realizing how much joy that brought me. So I do gratitude about my staff and my children and my partner. And then I also have a, a, a presence practice where I am, it is in addition to a meditation practice where I'm not thinking about what I'm grateful for, but thinking about how I'm feeling, what feelings are coming up, because I think it's really important to realize that being happy all the time and grateful all the time isn't what brings the most balance. We and have, it isn't real. <laughs> and it isn't real. And if we uh -huh. pretend, then we're not facing what's really happening. That's right. So I try to make sure I'm also really present in the negative feelings and leave space for that as well. Yeah. Um, one of the new practices that I brought in recently is the practice of savoring, which is the idea of being grateful for something in the moment that it's actually happening. As author, curator, editor, and public intellectual, Dr. Steele has been instrumental in creating the modern field of fashion studies and in raising awareness of the global cultural significance of fashion. Thank you and welcome, Dr. Steele. Thank you. So let's get into it. Yes. Where did you grow up and how did you fall in love with fashion? I was born in Boston and grew up mostly in Washington, D.C., 
So uh, neither of those are particularly <laughs> fashionable cities. D.C. much more so now than it used to be. Yes. Boston's never been a fashionable city. No. Um, I w wanted to be an actress when I was a child. Really? And actually for quite a while. And so that's, I think, how I became interested in the idea of fashion as costuming. My son was nice. He said to me once, oh, Mom, you've been on TV more than most actresses. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> and you, you have, actually, with all the media appearances yes. and all the photographs that you've taken at various events. Well, what motivated you to study fashion on this level? It was really accidental. People often talk about how a book can change your life. But in my case, it was two articles in a scholarly journal. We were assigned to do do an assignment at Yale where we had to look at two articles from a scholarly journal and give a report. Yes. And I can't even remember what my articles were. They were probably on the French Revolution. But my classmate, Judy Coffin, yes. read a feminist journal, Signs, mm. and two articles debating the meaning of the Victorian corset. Ah. Was it oppressive to women or was it sexually liberating? Wow. And it was just like a light bulb went on and I realized fashion's part of culture, I can do fashion history, because I'd gone there to study modern European cultural and intellectual history. And so I went to the library and discovered there were lots of kind of antiquarian costume histories, but they didn't treat it as a serious kind of social mm -hmm. or cultural history. It was kind of like, let's count the buttons on the doublet. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a lot of journalism, but there wasn't anything in between. Yes. So I thought, wow, this is great. It's a completely virgin field. Yes. And so that's how I got into it. Thank goodness you did. Unbelievable. What role does fashion play in our current lives? And why are some people obsessed with what they wear? I may be one of them. And for other people, <laughs> it, it means nothing. Well, fashion is a super important part of the world because it's kind of an interface between our own personal private psyche mm. and the society around us. It's a cliche to say fashion's a second skin, but it really is like this interface with which you're telling the world how you want to be seen. Yeah. And many people are surprisingly oblivious of this. They say, well, I never think about fashion. I don't right. care about that. And I always say, really? Did your mom pick out your clothes <laughs> you wore today? And they go, well, no, of course not. I picked them out. And I go, right. well, you didn't just pick them up off the floor because they weren't, you know. Right. Sort of people do have some idea how they want to present themselves. Yes. And clothes are one of the main ways we do that. Yes. So fashion does have a language all its own. It has, you could call it a language, but I think it's in a way more like music because mm. a language says something clearly and music creates a kind of atmosphere, associations, yeah. feelings. It would be embarrassing if you, your clothes were literally saying, I am sexy or I think I'm really rich. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> that would be embarrassing. But yes. you want clothes that maybe will create a kind of aura of richness and sensuality yes. around yourself. Yes. Yes, so a bit of a bit of a, a sim symbolism, yes, rather than an overt language. Exactly, I like it. And how has this language, whether overt or covert, how has this language of fashion spoken throughout history? Have there been seminal moments in in history where perhaps it wasn't obvious, but fashion definitely played a role? Well, first of all, I think human throughout all human civilizations and world history there's some kind of body adornment mm -hmm. even if it's not woven cloth clothes it could be body paint it could be animals furs it's something that people wear to decorate and in some cases to protect and yes. cover their bodies yes 
And this gradually developed into a kind of, as it were, a language, a semiotics, where the forms of adornment and clothing would say, I am male, I am female, I am married, I'm looking for a spouse. Yes. You know, I'm <laughs> yes, in this tribe, I'm in that tribe. Mm -hmm. And then as, it, as the world became more urbanized and, and complicated, a degree of freedom entered into it. And instead of having your clothes announce a kind of socially defined identity, yes. a married woman of in middle age with children in this particular culture, yes. it said, I'm Valerie, and I'm really interested in hip-hop. Yes. You know, so it started yes. to say things that were about you personally and your interests. And so it became more self-identified. Mm -hmm. And that's really when dress turns into fashion. And it happens slowly and at different periods. It's not just that fashion was a European invention. We definitely see it in medieval Japan and China, and at some level in a variety of other cultures as well, coming in at different points. There hasn't been nearly enough research to identify this, but we know there's been so much contact cross-culturally that we realize that people have been much more savvy about what clothes can say and how they can use those clothes. To relay certain messages without exactly. necessarily saying anything. Exactly. I also have Dr. Shirley Madere, who is a plastic surgeon. Uh, she has an office based in uh, downtown New York in Soho, right? Yes. Um, original approach, she, um, relative to other doctors I've come across, is, 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 takes a holistic one. Yes. Um, and so by that I mean um, she doesn't just do traditional clinical treatments, but she combines them with wellness and with what she terms age management. Um, she's a big believer that beauty comes from within and that external appearances are also a reflection of internal activities and health. Yes. So we're going to learn more about her approach and about what that means for in, uh, specifically for skin care. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, uh, return guest, uh, someone who's been on this show twice before, uh, Alana Drell-Zeifer. Uh, Alana is um, a longtime global beauty industry expert. She and I, um, a few lives ago, worked <laughs> together at the Estee Lauder companies. Uh, she currently is the CEO of a luxury skincare brand called Revive. Uh, but she earlier uh, in her in her career, in addition to working at Estee Lauder, also was at L'Oreal, at Avon, at Chanel, at a number of other um, uh, skincare and beauty companies. She sits on the board of a beauty retailer called Cosbar, which is uh, like a higher-end Sephora. She also is on the board of uh, two other skincare brands, one called Works Skincare and the other Al Alginist. So uh, I could go on and on about her um, her illustrious career in the industry, but we're here really to talk about techniques and about uh, learnings and insights and things that you at home can apply. So welcome back, Alana. Thank, thank you for having me, Pauline. So happy to be here. So um, we'll, we'll start. I'm just going to start, Karina, with you, since I introduced you first. You uh, have a few salons of your own. Yes, uh, I have one in Manhattan, uh -huh. which is uh, thriving for the last six years. And we have a brand new baby. We gave birth in September, which is on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And it's doing fantastically. Yeah. And you sell mostly French lines. Yes. I, I'm big 
believer in like natural European approach, mm-hmm. which is less is more. Mm-hmm. They have very found um, principles in beauty. So I stumbled across a company called Biologique Recherche, mm-hmm. which we have a contest of how to pronounce it. With my <laughs> Russian accent is Biologique Recherche. I'm probably going to be fired from Paris. I'll never appear, but... What I like about this brand and why I carry it and all my treatments are done with this brand is the approach to skin. Mm-hmm. They are believing in building skin stronger, thicker, while in the um, last few years in U.S., people were ten- had a tendency to strip the skin, you know, this ex- over-exfoliation, lasers, chemical pills, so... I didn't find a lot of success trying different lines on the market in U.S. Mm-hmm. And when I um, discovered Biologique Recherche with their holistic uh, products, with the old cold press and derived from highest, highest uh, materials, I just came to realization. So the results were amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. We just uh, worship this line. I am... I'm very happy with results and our clients and loyal mm-hmm. uh, customers are very happy. So using the right product is critical and we're going to talk more about mm-hmm. that. But also the treatments um, mm-hmm. are a part of it. So I find um, I go to one of your estheticians mm-hmm. um, and uh, I go say on a monthly basis and then I use the products that she recommends. But if I just use them for the rest of the year and I didn't ever go back, I don't think it would be sufficient. And why, why do you think here in America, and you can take issue with what I'm saying, but why in America are women much less prone to go for professional treatment than they are, say, in Eastern Europe where you come from? I think in America, people like instant results. We generally know that Americans are, in this respect, a little bit lazy. So immediate gratification is uh, what people are seeking for. And with the skin, unfortunately, it doesn't work this way. So I see a lot of uh, American um, women, they jump from skincare to skincare. They're always in pursuit of newer, better, without even checking if it does work. Mm -hmm. Not always new remedy is better than old proven ones. So in Europe, women for generations, it goes from grandma to mother to daughter. They come once a month to either deep cleansing or any kind of treatment, whatever your concern, if it's aging, if it's pigmentation, if it's a purity of your skin. So it, it's a part of a culture. And then once you find something that works, we tend to be loyal. Mm-hmm. In U.S., People follow trends. I have a lot of, um, uh, often times I get approached by writers, beauty writers, beauty editors. They call me and say, Karina, I would love to feature you. What's new? I, sometimes I do have something new, like uh, when we introduce microneedling, dermaplaning, or we're doing keratin brow lift, but it's not so often. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I tell them, listen, you come to me every month for old. You're not coming for this new. So mm-hmm. why don't we just give the old kind of new facelift mm-hmm. and talk about this microcurrent lift again, maybe through different... Oh, I can't write about it. Mm-hmm. We need something like, 
you know, groundbreaking mm. from 2019. Mm. And 2019, besides CBD, I don't know what it's going to be <laughs> right. giving us, right? If, if I may also add, Karina, mm. I would agree with you. And I think there is perhaps a cultural um, issue. Uh, perhaps there are women in America who weren't brought up with the idea that you have to take care of your skin. Mm -hmm. I know I was taught to moisturize my skin the minute I got out of a shower and that I could shower myself. So that was integral to my sense of well-being and to how my family thought that one can be well, one of the ways. And I think also perhaps the other issue... It may be related to media. And um, sometimes, at least in my profession as a plastic surgeon, beauty can be polarizing. Mm -hmm. And I tend to believe that everyone is beautiful. It's just how he or she chooses to express or manifest that beauty. Absolutely. However, when we're bombarded with what beauty should look like from magazines and celebrities, et cetera, et cetera, I think some people perhaps turn away from that and mm -hmm. revolt and rebel and mm -hmm. think, well, I, you know, I don't need makeup or I don't need, you know, nice skin or healthy skin to be beautiful. I just I want nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. And I've encountered that a lot as a plastic surgeon. You can imagine once I let people know that I'm a plastic surgeon, sometimes I get two different responses. Oh, that's interesting. And I sometimes get, oh, God, that's so superficial. So, uh, Dr. Shirley, I want to actually ask you about how you got into this more holistic approach. It's uh -huh. very unusual for doctors yeah. to think outside of the, you know, the, the, the technical realm that they were trained in. And it's not really in your best economic interest to think that That's way either, true. <laughs> right? That's true. Um, and I know from our prior conversations that you actually will turn people away yes. who want things that you know are not right, even though it could be very lucrative for you. Yes. So, so what was the breakthrough and, and, and how do you continue to have a, a, a thriving business vis-a-vis -vis the competition and the and the other mindset that prevails. Yes, it, it has been an interesting journey, and for sure, some of my colleagues think I'm a total freak. But I'm sticking, you know, I'm sticking to it because it's what I fundamentally believe in. And for me, this the transformation or the shift, the pivot, if you will, um, came from a very personal experience. I was very traditionally trained, um, general surgery, college, medical school, five years of general surgery, heart surgery, trauma surgery, nasal, all sorts of surgery that I was trained in, and then another traditional plastic surgery um, residency training, and then on top of that, an additional year of cosmetic plastic surgery training. Mm -hmm. So I just felt that it was important for me as a woman who would very likely wind up treating mostly women, that it was my responsibility to learn as much as I possibly can to be the best that I could possibly be. So I was working in that very traditional paradigm and everything was going well. I didn't have any crises, thank goodness, but I had a personal health issue. And one morning I was on my way to um, to work and I stopped in for a Starbucks. And um, I normally have a chai latte with whole milk, but I was trying to be healthy and I thought I would reduce that to 2% milk. But the Starbucks didn't have 2% milk and they said, I'm sorry, we only have whole milk. So I took the whole milk. Within 20 minutes, I was having digestive issues to the point where I was found, finding it difficult to work. And so I went on my own journey asking myself my question wow, I'm not feeling well. I'm obviously perhaps mm -hmm. not looking well. This must not just affect me. It must also affect my patients. And how I feel and how I look must definitely be related. Mm -hmm. And so I went on a personal professional journey and I continued to learn as much as I can about natural medicine, homeopathic medicine, organic uh, skin care, and incorporated that into my practice. Right. And well, that's how it happened. For our listeners oh. who don't have the 
benefit of seeing you. You you are gorgeous. Oh, thank you so much. So, I've had uh, some help <laughs> from makeup artists. Oh no, no, yeah, no plastic surgeon. Um, <laughs> no, not yet. But 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 let me just say because I do want to come back on the show as to what you, you each of your because I've got three gorgeous women here in the studio. But what thank your you. routines are and how you apply what you know as practitioners and as experts to your own routine. So let's dive into this podcast. I'm sure our listeners want to hear all about you and your book and all the things that you recommend. How did you arrive at nutrition and self-care? What was your journey? Why wellness? Why nutrition? Uh, you know, I was I, I was always interested in um, natural health. Um, my grandmother would take me to the health food stores and, you know, she was um, learning about nutrition through her, her healthcare practitioner. And I just remember being a little girl and, and following her around in these stores and looking, you know, at the different foods and supplements. And, you know, so it was always a part of my life. Um, and then as a competitive um, athlete in, in my teens, uh, you know, I became somewhat preoccupied with um, aesthetics and, and bad dieting and, yeah. you know, realized, you know, eventually, um, it, you know, I was in charge of my own personal health. And so I, you know, have, again, always interested in, in health and active, li active living, but I decided to study nutrition because, you know, if anyone's going to take care of themselves the best, it's, it's you. And so that's what I went to school for. Fantastic. Now, what competitive sport did you play? Um, I was a, um, a fitness professional. So I, um, in Toronto, um, I was a fitness instructor, a trainer. So it was always, you know, around um, in my late teens. But yeah. earlier on, I was in dance. So, you know, there was always something in, in body awareness yes. or aesthetics or, you know, um, being preoccupied or orthorexic to the foods you can or cannot consume. Um, so, you know, at a young age, and, and I mean, you still see it, it's just a part of society, really. Um, you know, you're, you're being brought up to believe that you have to uh, eat a certain way yes. or look a certain way. And um, that kind of mentality or behavior, because I'm a bit OCD, wasn't good for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Only the so best I, for you, Paula. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I thought, okay, well, how am I going to fix this? Well, who better to fix it than if I understand exactly what nutrition does for you, for your health, for, for your inner and, and outer being. Um, and that's, that's how it started. Great story. And I'm so glad that you did that. That whole being obsessed about what to eat and how to eat. I think it's even more pervasive now. I have my moments where I think, oh my gosh, what can I eat? What should I eat? It's pretty intense. Yeah. It, it, and there's a lot of information overload, especially with nutrition and nutritional science. Yes. There's bad diets and quick fixes out there. Um, and consumer or, or people in general are really becoming confused on, on what is healthy and balanced. Yeah. So speaking of um, nutritional science, you studied nutrition and you are obsessed with aesthetics and looking great and feeling fabulous. Let's dive in a little bit more now into what you did with this degree. So what are nutraceuticals and, and why should we even bother to incorporate them into our beauty routines? Well, nutraceuticals are, are, are otherwise known as dietary supplements, um, and they're really concentrated formulations or, or products to kind of super dose the body with um, certain nutrients. 
um, to uh, enhance or, or bring out a desired health effect. So, you know, there's so many different claims or health benefits uh, of different nutraceuticals and, and products, but my specialty really, it started actually in sports nutrition, went into um, weight management and then into mm. medical aesthetics. So yeah. again, there's always been some kind of aesthetic background or benchmark there. But um, so my focus in, with nutraceuticals and formulating is um, to bring out the best beauty from within. So to nourish and nurture the, the skin, uh, fortify uh, skin, hair, nails, um, contouring, slimming, um, and, and things like that. All sound great to me. Now, would you would you consider that category as cosmeceuticals to differentiate them from nutraceuticals? Yeah, they're te- technically known, um, you know, over the last 15 years or so as Nutri-Cosmetics. So that's kind of global, the global name. Um, so Nutritional Cosmetics is what they're known as. And do these Nutritional Cosmetics then f- therefore include prebiotics and probiotics? Yeah, more recently. Um, I wouldn't say so, you know, 10 years ago we were right. talking about antioxidants, which right. is, you know, when we met, we were talking about, you know, all the great uh, primary antioxidants in the body to combat oxidative stress. Well, we've really come a long way in those 10 years that we've known each other, um, you know, <laughs> from antioxidants to collagen. And now it's really talking about the skin microbiome. And so pre and probiotics that help to kind of um, breed and flourish a healthy skin ecosystem through the, um, the gut and skin microflora. Well, it's really very interesting because Back when we met, the whole theory on aging was, you know, oxidative stress and free radical damage. And now I think people are getting a little bit further away from that. And they're thinking, yes, there's oxidative stress. And yes, there's free radical damage. But it's really more so cumulative damage from a number of things, oxidative stress, the pollution, um, you know, the things you eat and you don't eat, etc. So now there's this more global theory on aging, which I think is appropriate, because I think that that's really how it happens. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. It's, it's cumulative and it's whole, it's integrated. So it's not just about, you know, what you're consuming, it's what you're exposing your body to, through your lifestyle, through the environment, um, through through the, uh, the food you consume. It, it is a holistic perspective in how you take care of yourself. And I think, you know, back in the day, 10 years ago, yeah, we were only talking one stream and that was right. antioxidants, right? So, but there's so much more that you really can uh, accumulate and accelerate the aging process. You've worked with so many clients and companies to try to teach them to better understand, or even if they do understand it, at least to incorporate these theories on aging and this holistic approach that you speak of into their products and into their services. Now, do you find that the individual clients on, are focused on things that are different from what perhaps the consumers may focus on? How is that? How has that relationship been? Yeah, that's really interesting. I do find that um, in some cases, you know, the, there's the, the business um, objective and goal and, yeah. and they, you know, they, they see something, a brand or, or a formulation that's going to be so amazing that they believe is going to be a hit, right? right. Um, consumer just doesn't understand. So um, because I work B2B and B2C, uh, both business and and consumers or client, uh, both clients of mine, I I try to bridge that messaging together. So, um, you know, I see what the consumer uh, is getting excited about and what they're really resonating to. um, And and I try to bridge that with the, the businesses that I work with.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty, curated by Dr. Shirley Madir, MD. Live beautifully and help make the world a more beautiful place.